Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 72. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and with me today is my, I guess, semi-co-host, part-time co-host. I am here often enough. You might be able to throw that moniker on it, yes. That's yeah, people may, uh, I, I will say who you are, of course, for oh, people tuning in for idea. the first time. Uh, it's Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Uh, but yeah, Jay, you've been on enough that uh, people start to, to recognize you. So welcome again. Thank you. As always, a pleasure, Derek. So, you know, today you and I were having a discussion, I think late last week, and we said, yeah, this is probably, we should just record this. So, you know, it's the idea we're starting to see more and more about the lower for longer. When we say lower for longer, we're talking about lower interest rates for longer, longer treasury yields for, for, uh, for longer. And there's, there's some talk too about maybe rates going negative. And we can touch on that maybe in a bit. We actually have seen uh, negative yield to maturity uh, inflation-protected bonds uh, go off. But, you know, Jay, I, I've looked at many years of data. I know we've looked at people ascent of stuff that goes back, I think, to the 1300s. There's a book, The History of Interest Rates. Like, if you really want to learn about interest rates, it's like a thousand-page book. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, goes back to, you know, during Roman times, like somebody saying, here, you can have this, but you have to give me collateral. But I don't know, Jay. I mean, I think um, I want to explore this a little bit, and then I want to eventually lead to, like, what's, what's the alternative for people? But in my mind, when everybody has one position, maybe we will see inflation. Um, but right now, Jay, it's lower for longer. And then, of course, we have the Fed. Never fight the Fed, right? Yeah. And, you know, when you say lower for longer, and I know you explained you're talking about lower interest rates will be around for a while. Um, before we get off that topic, you know, I, I'd ask you, and I know you know the answer to this, you know, can you think of any countries that have had very low interest rates for a long time, right? Is there any other, you know, period or active uh, uh, financial system that has experienced lower for longer? Or is this totally unique to what we're going through right now? Japan is is the case study, and more recently Europe. So Japan uh, experimented and is still experimenting with negative rates. Um, their central bank actually owns about three hundred billion uh, equivalent U.S. dollars uh, on their balance sheet, not only in you know bonds or or bond ETFs, but also some stock ETFs. And then more recently Europe, and um, there is some mixed thoughts about that. Some people look at the Japan experiment and say it actually didn't cause inflation; it caused deflation. Uh, but interestingly enough, on the equity side, you know, we have not seen uh, the Tokyo, uh, uh, the Nikkei index uh, based in Tokyo. We've never seen that reach its all-time highs uh, set in the '80s. So, um, you know, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy of of the markets and bonds there. Yeah, and and um, I think. And you clarify this a little bit. When you hear negative rates, it's because the net return at the end of the time period of the bond is you got back less than you put in initially, right? So you would be paying a higher premium up front. Yes, you'd be getting some interest, but no, you're, it's not like you have to write a check to, uh, uh, to, to the Bank of Tokyo or to, to, to the government of Tokyo every month because you've got a negative yielding bond, right? It's because you just paid a higher premium. Is that, is that accurate? To, if you if people are driving, don't do this. But if you have a pen, it's kind of like you know bonds are priced at, at maturity at par, which is a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars per bond. So let's say 
you buy the bond at greater than a thousand. Well, eventually at maturity, if you hold it long enough, it, you're going to get your thousand dollars back, excluding defaults. And then the bond can pay a coupon, but that's right. Um, let's say you only receive $50 at the life of the bond, but you lost $100 on the purchase price. Um, and when I say got up $50, that's the interest payments that you received. But if you bought it for more than it matured at, you lost that. So overall, you've lost money. Um, there is, um, you also could have a bond that doesn't pay any interest and, and you just pay more for the bond than par. Uh, but yeah, Jay, as of yet, they have not figured out a way to make you send a check into the <laughs> various treasuries. That's right. And, and and why would anybody do that? Like, why, If you knew buying this bond means I get back less money than when I started with, do you want to kind of enlighten uh, the listeners why people would even do such a thing? Well, there, there's two main purchases who, who just do it without getting too much into it. But it's it's governments, it's central banks. They ju- they just buy them, um, and they're they're doing that to increase the money supply or for other reasons. Uh, large pension funds, uh, they've got to. Uh, I think there's some regulatory requirement they do that, but also there's really large ETFs and mutual funds. For example, Vanguard has an inter- international. Uh, it's it's the AGG equivalent, but it's international. So the aggregate bond fund, but it's it's global. And so if that's the fund and that's your mandate, they've got bonds in there that have negative yield to maturity. But the reason why strategically you would do it is that if interest rates were all else equal, right? And it never is, but you know, rating stays the same and everything else stays the same. If interest rates go up, I'm sorry, go down and you have a bond that pays a higher interest rate. And by higher, it could be negative half a point and then they go to negative 2%. Your bond will appreciate in value uh, because of the present value of, of the, it's just the way we do bond calculations. So if you buy, you know, a negative, uh, let's say a 0%, you know, to maturity bond or a negative zero, you know, one-tenth of 1% bond, if rates go to negative 1% and that's a 30-year duration, you'd expect that bond to go up, you know, 27, 28, 30%. So it's, it's an interest rate play if strategically that's why you want to do it. Yeah, it's a directional trade, right? And you never had the intention of holding it to the maturity and getting back that less than what you paid for it, right? So there are reasons for it. It's very similar, maybe not similar in a way, but why uh, recently when oil went negative, it was just a function of this just has to happen in the market because of the trading activity associated with, in that case, that contract. But we're talking about bonds here. So yeah, I, I you know, Derek, I thought it'd be interesting just to touch on that because I think a lot of time people hear this concept of negative rates and it makes no sense. Heck, you even hear our president throw that out there from time to time. Like, hey, why not lend money and get paid back more than what you you owed, right? And and I just, I feel like in general, the population doesn't have uh, just a grasp of why anybody would ever take cash and buy something when they know they're going to get back less than what they started with, for sure. Yeah. And by the way, to clear something else up, I've heard people go on CNBC in our industry um, and of course, politicians who say all sorts of things, but they, uh, they were like, Hey, why don't we refinance our national debt? You know, our 22, 23, I guess it's probably going to be 25 trillion soon. But the reality is that when the treasury issues us treasury bonds, there's no call provision, meaning you can't call those back in. And so when rates went down and bonds went up in price, you'd have to buy them back at the market 
which essentially means it's already basing in what the interest rate is. It's not going to work, in other words. But yeah, um, but they can always issue new debt, right? Which is what we end up doing on a regular basis. Jay, what it, what is um, you know part of the thing with lower for longer too? Maybe we can switch to the equity side, and then I'll then I'll talk about maybe the home loan and cars. But just like what what does low interest rates mean on the equity side, right? I mean, you and I don't do this for a living. I say, you know, we're we're traders, we we manage portfolios and all sorts of other things, but we're not like putting a value on a company. But people do that; they have to make estimations about earnings in the future, and then lower interest rates means that those earnings are worth more. What does that mean for equities? Yeah, well, when your earnings are worth more, it says it's you can pay a higher price for that stock and feel better about it, right? Because, hey, the earnings are going to be worth more in the future. At the current price, I should be able to buy more. And so typically uh, what we see when you have lower interest rates, uh, you are going to have a, a higher equity market, a, 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 an equity market that moves up more, right? Bonds and stocks are always linked, Right. They just always are. They are the two main asset classes of the U.S. financial system. And, uh, you know, everybody hears you should own a piece of stocks and bonds. I think we're going to talk a little bit about why it's hard to own bonds uh, in a minute. But generally speaking, when rates go lower, uh, it adds uh, 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 sorry, when bonds go lower, it adds value to stocks. Right. So as rates drop, a companies can afford to borrow a cheaper uh, rates, which means they can invest in their company. They could hire people that will help their growth. There's things they could make technology investments that are, will make them more efficient. Just think when they can borrow for less, um, it should yield a better top line. Um, but there's another reason for it is uh, the old Tina argument. There is no alternative. And where we are today, and we have definitely seen this with client portfolios and even the portfolios we manage, you know, when rates get so low, it's just not even worth holding those bonds. You have to invest in the market. So not only do you have balance sheets, which potentially can be stronger down the road and in the future, but you also have momentum that just adds to the supply and demand reason why stocks go up. More people want to buy Apple um, uh, because they can't earn their money in bonds. So I give you kind of those two reasons for me when I think about why typically rates uh, will drive stock prices higher. Yeah, I mean, when when you're looking at, and, and you know, usually it's the first couple of years, you say, okay, what are the earnings going to be in the next couple of years or the market, right? The S&P earnings. And you say, okay, you know, it's going to have a, a terminal growth rate. What the heck does that mean? It means you're assuming these companies go on for a long time. So if your risk-free rate and the risk-free rate is typically the three-month treasury. Why is that? Because you don't have duration interest rate risk. Um, and you know the federal government, um, they, they may need to print money to pay you back, but you'll get paid back in theory, right? But when the risk-free rate is so low, any the discounting mechanism is also low. The other reason I'll throw out there too, and you mentioned there is no other alternative. Uh, somebody like uh, Aswath Demoterin from NYU does a, a lot of work on the equity risk premium. And it's kind of like, what should you expect in, in stocks or your investments uh, over the risk-free rate? I think there's also, you know, if you look at the, the 70s or the early 80s in theory, like why would you, why would you own equities, right? Um, and people look now and they say, well, is the equity risk premium? I, but I think there's an emotional side of this. And, and I'll explain. When, when bonds can give you 89%, 
you probably would be like, you know what, I'll switch the stocks, but I want 15%. But if rates are zero, Jay, I mean, if you're in stocks and you're getting like five, 6%, you're probably like, okay, I'll take five, 6%, right? Like you, I think on an emotional level, people require less um, at the same time, as you described, in theory, uh, asset prices can be a little more inflated, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, you're right. The, this, the linkage between what you can get from, you know, a risk-free investment absolutely is going to impact your expectations on a riskier investment, like say stocks. And you're right. And uh, uh, it does level out your expectations and risk and return are always linked. Um, the concept of a risk-free rate of return is used a lot in our industry by uh, portfolio managers like us that say, okay, how much better did I do than if I took no risk, right? And so, and that's, that's, that's used, I don't care if it's a bond portfolio, a futures, commodities portfolio, stock portfolio, it doesn't matter. You're always rated against the risk-free rate, right? It was, did I do better than if I took very, very, or no risk, right, at all? And so that, that leveling out of expectations on returns just happens across the industry, and it always comes back to where are interest rates, where are treasury rates, really? Yeah, the other area that I see, we'll spend a little bit of time on this and, and maybe then we'll, we'll go into like, what's the risk of holding bonds. But, you know, I, I actually, I had a lot of people ask me, do low rates, will it help um, people buy more car um, or, or how does it affect housing? Um, the first thing I'll, I'll touch on and then I'll, I'll kind of uh, maybe your thoughts on it before I switch to um you know, car loans, because I have some really different thoughts, <laughs> maybe some contrarian thoughts on that. But to give you some perspective, let's say that somebody buys a home for, oh, I don't know, $625,000. Why six twenty five? dollars It just works out because uh, 80% of that that you're going to borrow, right? You put 20% down is 500000 Nice, easy numbers. So at a 3% interest rate, which by the way, CNBC today on their screen, uh, I think the 30-year went to 2.94. I don't know where they get that from. But at 3%, the principal and interest on that loan would be uh, $2,108. Okay. So you could afford, if that's what your budget says, you could afford a $625,000 house, right? But at, at 5%, your payment would go to 2684 at 7% it's 3326 um, to put a little more color on that to have the same payment of you know 2108 that you had at a, a 3% rate you couldn't afford a $625,000 house you could only afford a 491,000 and some change house um, at 5% and then the other thing I'll just mention um, I didn't realize, you know, obviously everyone, everyone who has a mortgage knows you pay principal and interest and early on you pay more interest than you do principal, but it's actually kind of fascinating. Um, your first payment on the $500,000 loan at 3% would be of the 2108, $1,250 of interest and $858 of principal. Now, just for argument, I'm just going to change this real quick before I flip it to you, Jay. Um, at a 7%, um, your payment goes to 3326 but your interest is 2916 your principal is 409 so you you every time you make a payment uh, in this instance at least your first payment you would be putting half as much towards and there's that break even i don't want to make this a mortgage podcast but jay i think this is one of the reasons why you know there, there's two things at play there's home prices 
And some people say, well, interest rates going down is really good because I can afford more home. Uh, but the reason why maybe you can afford more home is because you have low rates. But low rates is definitely, in my opinion, causing uh, at least to, to bolster, potentially inflate um, homes. I'm not an expert on homes. Don't buy or sell homes based on what I say. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, though. Just yeah. So really, th- this is uh, uh, I think this is kind of a great real life example for for everybody just understanding how much more your money can buy when you uh, pay less on the money you've borrowed. Right. So in your example that you just gave, if your rate was between you know the three percent, you could buy a six hundred twenty five thousand dollar house, or comparatively, if your rate was five percent, you're only buying a four hundred ninety one thousand dollar house. Right. That hundred and thirty thousand dollar difference is. That's a that's a pretty big deal. Now, do I do I think that it you know the lower rates are causing all four hundred ninety one thousand dollar homes to now be worth six hundred twenty five? I that seems a little stark to me. However, um, it's it's certainly a factor. There's no doubt about it. Um, so I do I do think you're absolutely right that lower rates can cause inflation in areas like housing. Um, I think the other thing that we see with lower rates are things like refinancing, right? And so you may not even change houses, right? But you will be, you know, like, why would I not want to save if I dro- if I could drop from a 5 to 3%? Why would I not want to save that $580, you know, per month, right? That's real money. That adds up over time. Um, I did not realize the interest breakdown that you laid out on the higher rate versus the lower rate of how much of the principal you're paying down. Um, that is interesting, but listen, that is, uh, the bank's got to get there. They're taking the risk, right? That you won't pay them back. I get why they want to get paid. Um, I, I, uh, you know, when you think about why interest rates are what they are, um, it is a factor of your ability to pay it back, right? The bank looks at you and says, Hey, you know, what's your chance you're going to, I'm going to get back this money that I lent you, right? And we know things like credit scores go in, into things like interest rates, but, you know, I think they end up taking a little more risk uh, here as well, right? Uh, uh, now, granted, they, their asset that they're lending on is becoming more valuable, potentially, right? Uh, and that they have, uh, you know, they have control of that. But in all, in all you know, in, in, when you look at the big picture, I think in an environment like this, banks haven't been able to really price their default rates because of things like we're going through with the virus. And so let me just tie it all back to your point about inflation. I think there's also a chance that you could see, you know, additional inflation uh, due to, you know, kind of the environment that we're in just because of defaults and banks will have to charge more. You know, um, you know, if you the 30 year bond, right, the 30 year treasury, I think, what do we say is going for? One and a half, one point three, somewhere in that range, right? But yet banks are charging you three percent, or now, like you said, just two point nine plus. Um, that is the only thing that's the cushion, right? That the that the banks have is the difference between what they borrow and what they can lend. That net interest margin, um, you know, that is also something to think about, Derek. Do we think that you know an increase in defaults? And a decrease in the amount of cushion that the banks can work in between what they buy and they sell. Do you think that's something uh, uh, that also can cause inflation uh, uh, in other areas of the market? Yeah, I mean, I I think so, and I think it it's a it's a bigger discussion because when the Fed gets involved, you know, they print money. Uh, that money has not caused inflation because it's gone. 
into more financial assets and you know harder assets like housing. Um, I I think you bring up a really interesting point about the risk to the banks, and we just mentioned you know the U.S. government can't call in bonds that are two percent and reissue them at you know 0.7 percent. But you as a homeowner, you mentioned refinancing, like you have a call provision, and you know if you do a mortgage and then inflation goes up, the value of your debt goes down. It gets inflated down. And, but you can always refinance. It's like a special privilege. And I don't want to turn this into a rent versus an own, but that's an often overlooked thing. Um, I guess it's often overlooked too, that you have to replace your water heater and you know, um, any number of things, you know, maintenance in the house. Right. We probably shouldn't go down that path, but yes, you're right. But yeah, but I, I do think like if the bank's, are if the spread narrows on what they can make on this, they probably have to make it up somewhere, and maybe that's where where the inflation happens. But that's and that's that's where my that's exactly it, right? I mean, the banks have a responsibility, and they have to maintain a balance sheet. And the reasons are because some people just won't pay back the banks, right? And I'm assuming right now a lot less people are going to be paying banks banks back now than they were say a year ago. And uh, there there's there's risk there, right? And uh, you know, I do think that the other things will eventually push higher, other fees and costs and uh, uh, lending uh, uh, costs associated with lending are all going to appreciate over time. So I don't know, you know, it's interesting. I know where I am in Florida, um, we definitely are seeing a, an increase in housing prices. And it's not just because people want to, you know, move to Florida, uh, uh, even though a lot of people do. It's, it, uh, and they are building here like crazy. Right. And prices are still appreciating. So I do think, you know, you're definitely onto something here about uh, um, how much more you're willing to spend when your dollars uh, can 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 get you a bigger or, a, a, you know, a, a larger condo or a larger house. I think you're definitely onto something with that, Derek. Yeah. You mentioned there's other factors. Um, and I'll just mention it briefly. Obviously, wage increases, unemployment. I mean, that, that's a big driver of disposable income. But one area that I you know, I'll push back a little bit to those who are pointing to lower rates as the reason why car sales, you know, have been, and I haven't looked at it recently, uh, but it is interesting. Um, over the years, the average amount financed for new cars, I think it's either thirty-two dollars or $35,000 now. And you think, well, that seems kind of crazy. And people say, well, it's the interest rates that are going down. But I ran some numbers. Um, People used to do car loans at you know thirty six months. That was the typical. And, and why thirty six? Because it's a car is a depreciating asset. Um, every day that you own it, it's kind of like selling options, time decay, right? Every day that, that it's out there, it's losing value. Um, so, a thirty five thousand dollar car at a seven percent interest rate for thirty six months is a payment of a thousand eighty one. People are like, oh wow, that's well, I wouldn't do that. Well, maybe you would do that. I don't know. But then you, you lower the rate to 2%. You think, oh, this is great. You know, it only goes down to 1,002. Um, the, the total amount that you wind up paying for the car goes up like three grand, you know, including your, your principal and interest. But what's happened in the car space, it's not interest rates going down, in my opinion. It's the duration of the loans. And so if you take that same $35,000 car and use a 2% interest rate, for 72 months, now your payment's 516. And, you know, at, at 0%, it's 46. And now I saw a couple of weeks ago, they're doing, you know, either no interest or low interest for 84 months. 
I don't know how the, this is another area I think I'm going to watch. And this is one of those, like you could have called housing the top. I'm not calling the top in car sales. I'm just saying at some point, if interest rates rise or you, you got all these loans out there on cars that are depreciating, like in month 70, how much equity is going to be in a car depending upon what you have back? I just think it's an interesting situation that we'll we'll see it we'll see it on a you know a 60 minutes piece at some point right well so you get this initial pop because rates are low and it's easier to borrow to buy a car right and that's one of the benefits that uh, you would expect the fed is trying to drive by lowering rates right the, hey we want commerce we want people to be able to you know spend money on large purchases buy a car get yourself to work those kinds of things keep the economic uh, wheel moving. Uh, but so I do think you get this initial pop in, um, in just economic activity when rates go lower, cars is the example. But now let's take this out. Hey, I'm in this, this loan for seven years. Do you think, Derek, that because you had a seven-year loan, you're really going to keep the car for seven years? Do you think it really changes your behavior on the length of time that you keep a car? You know, for me, we, I, I just happen to be one of those people that keep a car and I run it to the ground, right? I, I, I will take a loan and pay it off, you know, early and then, you know, drive the thing into the ground and then just hopefully it gets towed to the junkyard and I get a little money for parts, right? But, you know, that's not everybody, right? And do you, do, do, would you project that the lower uh, borrowing rates would change the behavior because they had to go with a longer term on the loan or people just say, ah, I'm giving it up. I mean, I guess you'd be upside down on your loan by year five or six, most likely, right? What you can get back for the car is it's maybe it's harder to pay off the loan. I don't know. Have you have you thought about that? Because I like this is a unique thought, right, Derek? People haven't really thought about the fact that um, you know, are you really causing a, 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 an issue with these longer loan terms when it comes to cars? Is that really changing things like sales projections and that kind of stuff? But yeah, yes. I'm just and yeah. yes, Jay, it's, yeah. uh, okay. but I'll, I'll point to, I think the wall street journal, I, I linked to it if I could remember, you know, uh, but I think they had an article of where people are coming in, um, and they, they do want a new car, not, you know, before the seven years or the six years, they come into the dealership and they're upside down, meaning they owe more than the car is worth. And I think I read in the wall street journal, um, they're rolling that debt into the new. So now you get a new car loan and you got a portion of the old debt plus what you're paying for the new one and your loan just keeps growing. Uh, This is not going to be good. Yeah, this isn't going to be good for anyone. I don't know where it ends, but I expect, uh, I'll I'll make a prediction. The next 10 years, 60 minutes, we'll be doing a piece about, uh, you know, all sorts of issues with this. That's my prediction, Jay. All right, you're on. My other prediction, uh, which so far has been wrong, um, but at some point it'll be right. And if you give a prediction enough time to be right, eventually it will be. And here it is. Let's talk about the risk of bonds and why people need alternatives. Uh, we mentioned earlier that, you know, the the rate on the 30-year treasury, I think you said it was like 1.3%, one, one, 1.4%. 1. The 10-year is less than 1%. It's 070 so to give you some perspective on that, um, that means that if you buy a bond for $1,000, you know, assuming you buy it at par, and 
the great thing about doing podcasts from home offices, you, you do have some background noise, but that, that adds to the ambiance, Jay, if you can hear that. Yeah, it's nice. Uh, it's, it makes yeah, it more folksy. It is. So anyway, so $1,000, you buy this bond, you're getting $7 a year at seven at 0.7% interest. That means over the course of 10 years, you would have received $70. Now, that same bond at a 10% rate, uh, you would have gotten $100 a year. And over 10 years, not 70, but you would have received $1,000. So there's a couple risk here. And by the way, the 30-year, you can do your own calculations there. But what, um, what we're outlining here is this, this issue with not only are you not getting paid any interest, but bonds have been going down since 1981. 60-40 um, portfolios, guess what? They worked again um, because rates went down. You know, you had a, a one seven ten year; it goes down to uh, 0.7. You had a you know a three and a half to thirty year. I mean, I think thirty year bonds were up something like twenty five percent at one point uh, during the downturn. So people look at that and they say, oh, "I told you, you know, bonds will keep working." But here's the thing: when interest rates are this low, you're not getting paid. And at some point, I mean, is it plausible that the 30-year might at some point go from 1.3 to 2.3? That would be a loss of around, you know, back in the napkin, about 25%. If rates went from 1.3 to to 3.3, you're looking at, you know, 48%. This is what I wrote about in my book, Broken Pie Chart, available on Amazon, Jay. Uh, But I, I wrote about the target date surprise. And this is what I think, this is another 60-minute piece. You're going to see at some point where, you know, rates go up. Um, and by the way, it wouldn't take much. And people near retirement are going to be like, wait a second, I'm 70% in bonds, mostly treasuries. How did I lose this much? Um, I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow because it happens. It hasn't happened for 30 years, right? Uh, but Jay, I don't know. I mean, that, that's, that's the risk out there. Yeah, let's let, let me let me uh, kind of review it because I think it's a really it's an important fact here. So the first thing is let's just get this out of the way for people that uh, may not realize this: when rates go down, bonds go up in value, and when uh, 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 when yields go uh, up, bonds go down in value. Right. So that's that's the dynamic that you're talking about. The, I think you used to do. A, Back in the day, Derek, we used to do a seesaw uh, slide on this, right? That's right. So, that's right. Um, you know, that's so. First, remember that relationship, right? It's oh, yields go up. That means your bond. That means bonds went down, right? When yields go down, bonds are more expensive. They go back up. And so, if you're at this, let's say, well, we know for the U.S., it's historic low bond rates, and it's been a downtrend for 30 years. Nobody can argue with that. But at some point, even just a minor. Rebound, right? I don't think anybody would be feel, uh, hey, it was a big change. Bonds went bonds went from one percent to two percent. Like that seems okay. What's the big deal? But it's a big deal when you have that seesaw effect. And I think you just laid out the differences in the underlying price of the bond itself. Now, if you hold the bond to maturity, this really isn't that much of an issue for you, right? But when you're holding things like bond funds that have target date, that have durations uh, targets. Um, that can't hold bonds to the end of their maturity, they have to trade out and buy new ones, right? And so what ends up happening is, because I'm getting to your target date point, 
Um, what happens is that because uh, uh, vehicles like mutual funds and ETFs that hold bonds um, have to kind of constantly swap out and trade, they aren't holding to the end. They aren't getting back the $1,000 that they initially bought that bond for, right? They have to deal with what the market is willing to give them. And if rates have changed, if rates have gone up, the amount of money that they can get back for the bond that they previously bought is going to be less. And why is that? Is because people can go to the market and pay something and buy something that's paying more. So the one you have that has a lower rate built into the coupon as the market went up, you can't get as much money for. Right. So that dynamic, Derek, I think you're talking about here, which is, you know, target date funds, which hold a portion of stocks and bonds. And as you get towards the maturity target date of that fund, um, they rotate from out of stocks into bonds. Right? And so, again, sorry if I'm saying something that's really, really obvious here. But, you know, when you're in your last year of a target date fund, the odds are it's mostly treasuries to take less risk because that's what modern portfolio theory tells you even though it's 70 years old, not so modern anymore, but that's what that tells you. Whereas uh, let's, maybe we won't get on that, but, uh, and you're, you're, you have less stocks. You're almost all treasuries. You're almost all the quote unquote safer asset class. But if bond rates move quickly and the funds that you're in, the funds that are being used within those funds, because most of the the time, those are funds of funds, you can find yourself in a position where what you thought was a safe investment is losing money because interest rates moved from a big whopping 1% to 2%. But the impact on the value of your fund that you're holding could be pretty dramatic. I said exactly what you said, just hopefully in a little different way. But I really wanted to hammer the point home that I think people don't realize this relationship between you know rising rates and dropping values of the bonds you're holding. I think the one thing, and that's a great explanation that cleans up whatever I said uh, very well. Or muddied um, it up one way or another. <laughs> But the, the one point I would make, you know, um, I wouldn't say correct you, but I would say I'll augment one of the things you said is that you hold the bonds to maturity, um, you know, eventually you get your par value back. But I actually would say the risk there, if you own a 30-year bond, let's say, let's just simplify it, and it's paying 1.3% and the bond goes down because interest rates went up, the reality is that you're getting an increasingly less amount of interest uh, I'm sorry, you're, you're getting, a, you're not getting an inflation uh, comparable return. In other words, if you're getting 1.3 and inflation's 4%, you're losing purchasing power each and every year. So yes, on the, you know, the value of the bond. Um, and, I, and I think it's, you know, and by the way, um, there's some, we'll probably have to do this another time, but there's some debate about, you know, the CPI, you know, inflation has been one and a half, two percent. Uh, but something like the what did I say was the the Chatwood? I gotta remember that Chatwood index. I'll link to it. They track like five hundred of the most popular items in cities, and they're they see inflation like seven, eight percent. We know medical inflation, school books. Uh, I mean, there's inflation in different areas, but um, but I think Jay, you know. So you're, you're touching on real inflation of what we actually yeah. experience versus what, you know, the metrics are compared to things like bond prices, right? Yeah. And you can go to shadow stats and they have some different things. I'll link to all this stuff. But I think this plays into the fact that, you know, okay, look, if, if rates go down, you could see uh, bond prices go up. By going down, like to see the same 30-year run, they'd have to go to like negative 20%, literally. 
you know, because they were they were close to that 1981, right? But I think the need for an alternative here is a good pivot point because, in my opinion, I think in your opinion, like holding a bond, the patient next to nothing, where you have asymmetrical interest rate risk. Um, yes, if rates go down, you. I mean, if rates went down on the 200 basis points to like negative. One and a half percent. Yeah, you could make like fifty percent on a thirty-year treasury. Uh, but I think the problem is the holding cost and the fact you're not getting anything. You do have inflation risk, so we need an alternative. And I know it's something you know we've been working on. You, you, and our trader Mick have been spending a lot of time. So people, if if they're like, okay, I, I don't want to hold bonds because of these things. Um, and by the way, next year, you could see bonds go up if rates go down. I just want to be really clear. You could have a same situation that happened recently. But like, what's the alternative? Yeah. So the, let's think about the characteristics here of why somebody would want bonds in their portfolio, right? And, and historically, what we've been taught, they are safer vehicles. They have kind of a predicted uh, return. Uh, and you, you, know, you understand the kind of risk associated in a bond, uh, especially if you're willing to hold it to the end. Um, and so- but the problem is, as we've already been pointing out for the last 40 minutes, that interest rates being this low are really not paying you what it's worth. I'm going to tell you, when I'm building a plan for an investor, um, I don't have any plans where I go, well, if I only make you half a percent a year, we're going to hit our target. That's, just, that's not part of any advisor's plan that they're building for people these days, right? Bonds are not a vehicle today. Certainly, you know, U.S. government bonds, the safest kind of bonds. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll probably go out on a limb when I say that. They're considered some of the safest bonds out there. Um, of course. They uh, uh, they just aren't uh, going to pay you enough. So you need to take risks somewhere else. And you end up doing things like getting into stocks, which have, okay, I'm going to buy Verizon. That's got a 5% yield because I need more than just this 1% a year to hit my target, right? You get forced into these positions where you have to take on additional risk. So, but it would be great if there was a version of an investment strategy where, okay, I could take some risk, a little bit of risk and measure that, generate regular returns, almost predictable types of returns um, uh, so that I can hit targets that I built for investors, right? And, you know, we have been struggling with this over time and uh, we got to the point where we said, you know what, we're going to build an alternative. And so, yes, it is one of those things that we are uh, uh, we're just releasing now a, 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 an alternative to bonds. We're calling it our bond replacement option strategy, where you use options to generate uh, regular returns by scraping dividends off of uh, off of you know equity type assets or ETF ETF type assets, but doing it in a way where you've measured your risk and you've provided stability that you would expect from a bond. And so while these are not, you know, I'm making little air quotes, synthetic bonds, these are uh, strategies that are designed to mimic the desirable portions of bonds, like, you know, uh, uh, lower volatility and risk and more predictable return. Uh, and that that ends up being one of the advantages, Derek, that we think it makes sense to work uh, with people like you, like me, that we can create things that give you solutions where traditional assets like stocks and bonds are not going to actually be able to solve your investment problem. But yeah, that has kind of driven us towards uh, the low rates have, have really driven uh, a need towards building a product that can replace bonds in a portfolio because they're just, 
they're, they're, they're not giving you what you would expect or what you need for portfolios. I mean, one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize is that, uh, you know, sometimes, and, and, you know, we like to use spreads. Spreads are you buy an option, sell an option, but you, you sort of define the risk. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize, Jay, is that uh, the dividends, uh, whether it be dividends on, uh, you know, a high yield uh, bond fund or a corporate bond fund, the dividends are reflected in the value or the premium of puts, right? Exactly. Exactly. Right. There's, there's this, um, uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that those, those, uh, the options have to reflect an upcoming dividend. And so if you're a seller of options, you can capture that dividend, at least a portion of it, right? It's not a hundred percent dollar for dollar, like all things with options. It's, there's always a level of it, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it is embedded in the option prices. I'm going to give you a really quick example, right? Let's say you have a stock, it's a hundred dollars and it's paying a $1 dividend. The day you'd normally get your dividend, the stock would go from 100 to 99 and you'd get your $1. That's the way dividends work, right? Ex-dividend date and you get the pay date. Great, 99 plus my one in cash. Thank you very much. I'm still at $100. Well, the options market knows that dollar is coming and puts, which appreciate when a stock price goes down. So that again, put values go up in value when a stock goes down in value. Um, know that the $100 put uh, the $100 strike is going to be worth a dollar more tomorrow than today after dividends are paid. Yet you don't end up owing the dollar dividend to anybody. So the option market doesn't let you buy that put without having the uh, dividend, without paying for that dividend that everybody knows is coming. And so as a seller of options, you get to be on the other side of that. And you say, listen, I know a dollar dividend is coming. I'll sell the put, capture that dividend. That is embedded in the price because it is an expected payment that will reduce the price of the stock and increase the uh, value of the put. So, you know, I mean, I think that's, that's, uh, I tried to explain that uh, uh, briefly with spreads. You could do some other things where you limit losses and the dividend is more in there and how much in the money, all of those things go into the math there. But I think what's important to realize is you can synthetically capture or mirror a portion of the dividend by selling puts or put spreads on a higher yielding vehicle. And if you're someone that ever looks at an option chain, I recommend you look at higher yielding ETFs like HYG or JNK, or you could look at stocks like JNJ or Verizon. And you could see before the dividend or even going out to when the dividend is going to be paid, you could see an increase in the value of the puts. And that is absolutely a factor that goes into uh, the pricing. I think it was either you or somebody else within Zega always used to say, look, when there's no free lunch, if a, if a stock is trading at 100 and the dividend is going to be five bucks. Uh, you can't buy the hundred dollar put for two bucks and have a riskless trade, right? It it just it it doesn't work. Meaning your stock goes from a hundred to ninety five. You get the five dollar dividend, but then you only pay two, so you net three completely risk free. It's not how it works, and thus the embeddedness. I think that's a word. If not, I'll just make it up <laughs> in the put. So I mean the. Talk about some of the benefits of maybe doing, you know, a synthetic uh, capture strategy as opposed to, you know, having like a 60-40 portfolio. Well, yeah, I, I, I'll tell you that um, the, the, there's two benefits. One, again, the predictability of the returns, because we know that the dividends are embedded in the options themselves. We sell options to capture that. Um, whether you want to use leverage to capture more, right? Wouldn't it be great to be like, hey, I'm instead of 
you know, buying a hundred shares, I could sell two or three contracts and capture two or three times the dividend. Of course, you're creating more leverage, you create more risk, which is the second benefit that I want to talk about. When you use options, you can define your risk. The problem is when you own a stock and if you own it just for the dividends, you take all that risk associated with the stock, right? So if you're hoping for an annual return of 5% in dividends from a stock or an ETF, um, the stock and ETF could go down a lot more than 5%, right? You're taking on additional risk associated with the underlying uh, vehicle itself. But with options, we're able to actually limit that risk, right? We do spreads, as you mentioned in a, a minute ago, where we're selling a put and buying a put farther down. The most we can lose is the distance between those two options. Now, uh, uh, that may limit the amount of the dividend that you take, but it severely limits the loss that you uh, that you may experience. So, what do I mean by that? So, let's say um, you know, let's let's use HYG for an example. It's an eighty-five. I guess it's an eighty-two dollar ETF today, and uh, uh, you can do a spread that is say only five points wide, and you could sell that spread for two dollars. The most you can lose in that scenario is the difference between the strikes minus the premium you brought in. So five dollars eighty, uh, and you get this dividend, the most you're going to lose there is like three bucks, right? So, but it's an $85 stock. The point is I'm put, taking on a position. If it's all about capturing the dividend, I can capture the dividend in the option. And if the most I'm going to lose on an $85 stock or an $82 stock is three bucks, then so be it. I've also created protection while still capturing the dividend uh, through the options. And so, you know, Derek, when you talk about uh, when I said, you know, what is attractive about bonds in a portfolio, we could replicate that of regular income from a dividend or capturing it with the put selling, but also creating lower volatility because we're limiting the amount we can lose versus say just owning a stock like Johnson and Johnson or Verizon that can go, you know, down to zero or down 50%. Yeah. And I think one of the important things too, is that what we're seeing just anecdotally, um, just talking to advisors over the years, a lot of their clients who are near retirement or actually are in retirement, um, actually need a little bit more growth than you think. And, and part of it is the life expectancy. Uh, good news, uh, people seem to be living longer. Bad news, you're going to need more money for longer. So I think, you know, the idea of people still needing growth, uh, it also points to, you know, you've got in a 60-40 or 40-60, whatever it is, where you've got treasuries yielding next to nothing. It's tough to, to make the equity portion, especially as it gets reduced, work that hard, right? It's exactly right. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So, um, you know, I don't I don't want to go too deep uh, in, into all of that and the time value and those types of things. But I do think, Derek, if you can solve the question for investors around creating um, an acceptable growth rate for three, four, five percent with traditional bond type risk, there is a real need for that in the marketplace. Well, and I think... Uh if, if it is lower for longer or even lower for even longer, I think stuff like this is going gonna, is gonna to continue to bubble up. I mean, uh, it's look, you and I have been, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, you and I have been, I think, on the forefront of this. We looked at what was going on in Europe several years ago and said, you know what? I, we just can't keep rates. Our rates can't stay that high. Uh, one, because the dollar would get too strong. but um, if on a relative basis, if you've got all these central banks and governments keeping rates low, and by the way, the debt is ever increasing, like there's no incentive uh, for governments to have higher rates with all this debt. So who knows? Maybe maybe it's 
even lower, even longer. But I don't know, Jay. We'll see at some point. So, um, all right, folks. Well, Jay, thanks again for coming on today. And uh, of course, as the semi-permanent co-host, uh, you'll be back on in the coming weeks. Uh, as always, uh, you know, send uh, ideas for future podcasts. Uh, we like to get those. And uh, a couple of the the ones that I've done, uh, in fact, some I've done with Jay, have been uh, listener requests. And I'll link to all the stuff. I'll link to the things that Jay is talking to. I'll link to to Jay's book. Jay, your book is now in in reprint. Uh, you just want to mention that real quick. Yeah, uh, Buying Hedge, uh, the uh, Five Iron Rules for Investing Over the Long Term. We did have a, a reprint. Actually, we changed publishers, right? So nothing really changed in the content, but we did uh, uh, have it uh, reprinted, and it is available on Amazon, just like your wonderful book, Broken Pie Chart. There you go. A good good idea. So great July 4th uh, gifts, Father's Day gifts. Uh, I'll link to those as well. Jay, thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much, Sarah. All right. See you, everyone.